historically within the church, there has been this view that apologetics is the discipline that is for the pastors, professors, the professional theologians. But if you look in scripture, apologetics is God's idea, and it's actually God's idea for every Christian. This is Worldview Legacy, the podcast from the Think Institute that helps Christian men become the worldview leaders their families and churches need. If you enjoy this episode and you want to take your learning further, you have got to know about the Hammer and Anvil Society. This is the semi-secretive learning fellowship of the Think Institute. The Hammer and Anvil Society consists of a cohort of brothers who are on the same journey together. And along with the cohort calls, there is a ton of resources, online learning courses that you can take, and then we discuss them. If you want to learn more about the Hammer and Anvil Society, I'm going to tell you how you can join at the end of this episode. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. I am your host, Daniel Vincent. You can find us and other podcasts at reformpodcast.com. Also, check out our blog at theparticularbaptist.com. Net. And today we have a guest with us. Um, it's Joel Setacase coming from the Chicago area. Joel, thanks for joining me today. Appreciate it. Appreciate it, Dan. Thanks. Yeah. Um, so before we dive into our discussion on apologetics, tell us a little bit about yourself, get the audience acquainted with you a bit. Sure. I am the grateful husband of Elisa and father of our four kids whom we homeschool. We live outside of Chicago in the Tri-Cities area. Our ministry is based out of St. Charles, Illinois. And I am the executive director of the Think Institute. The Think Institute is a Christian teaching and outreach organization that primarily seeks to equip Christian men to lead their families in articulating, sharing, and defending the Christian worldview. So really, we're all about building your worldview legacy. And that's actually the name of my podcast, Worldview Legacy. I am a former pastor myself, and I wrote a book called The Bible-Based Worldview, which I originally wrote for the members of the Hammer and Anvil Society. That's our men's discipleship forum um, fellowship that we run through the Think Institute. And um, like I said, I'm a former pastor. I teach high school apologetics at a homeschooling co-op, and I've served in ministry on and off since 2009, uh, educational and church ministry. Uh, What else? I enjoy road trips. collect books and uh love the great sport of rugby oh okay that's kind of unusual for an american but all right (laughs) it is yes it is i picked it up in college actually because i had wrestled in high school okay and um, i played soccer and i'm like well rugby is basically wrestling and soccer combined so maybe i could do that all right so diving into our discussion today so we we're going to talk about apologetics and some of the issues surrounding that, what's a, you know, what's the biblical approach to apologetics. And we know that this is a hot topic, especially among Calvinistic reform folks, um, as to what is the approach to take with apologetics, right? So we're going to talk a little bit about some issues surrounding that. So why is apologetics such an important topic for the Christian uh, and why should we study it? Well, it's a great question. I think a lot of people, maybe not a lot of people anymore, but Historically, within the church, there has been this view that apologetics is the discipline that is for the pastors, professors, the professional theologians. But 
if you look in scripture, apologetics is God's idea, and it's actually God's idea for every Christian. I'm sure that your viewers and listeners may already know this, but the word apologetics comes from 1 Peter 3.15. And in that verse we read, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. And that word defense, that is apologia. That's where we get the word apologetics from. It's also where we get the word apologize. And so you can kind of think about when you're apologizing, you're giving an explanation. Here's why I did what I did. I'm so sorry. Apologetics is the flip side of that. We're explaining why we believe what we believe, but we're not saying that we're sorry for it. We're saying we're we're vindicating our belief. We're explaining why it's actually correct. So apologetics is God's idea. We're commanded to do it. And it is for every Christian. If you go back to the opening chapter, the opening few verses of 1 Peter, you see that Peter is writing to the saints, those who have been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb, uh, the saints who are scattered everywhere. There is no mention at all or any indication that Peter is speaking to a professional class of mm. professors or pastors. He's speaking to all Christians. So by the time you get to chapter three, where he says, always be ready to give a defense, he's still talking to the everyday Christians. So it's God's idea. It's God's idea for everyone. And apologetics serves some very important purposes. It helps clear up misunderstandings. It helps you share the gospel. I'm a big believer that apologetics should serve our evangelism. Apologetics is a handmaiden to evangelism. And so, uh, you know, it's still such a foreign concept for many of us. So when I talk about apologetics, I will often talk about the motivation, uh, what's, what, what ought to be behind the motivation of, uh, you know, what's our motive for defending our faith. And um, we can go right back to 1 Peter 3 again. In 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17, we get this brilliant teaching from the apostle on our motivation. And first he says, do not, do not be afraid. Um, really, without getting into a full exegesis of the passage, there's really two things that shouldn't motivate us, Dan, and that is pride on the one hand, mm. fear on the other. You know, if we're motivated by pride, that's where we start to feel like this person better not outsmart me. I've got to be the smarter mm. guy here. You know, and I've yeah. got to one up this guy. I'm gonna, I'm gonna apologize him into oblivion into oblivion, you know? Yep. And he's gonna wish he never messed with me. Now that's that's the pride aspect. Fear, on the other hand, this is where we are we're afraid that they're gonna think that we are stupid, ignorant bigots. And so what do we start to do? We start to flatter the unbeliever and say, well, you're clearly a fair-minded individual. You're neutral. You've, you've weighed the evidence and you're just not convinced. Let me see if I can perhaps give you some evidence that might convince an intellectual such as yourself. And we're doing this out of fear and flattery, and that's not good either. Uh, instead, what ought to motivate us, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3.15, he says that in your hearts, sanctify or hallow the Christ as Lord. Hallow, to hallow means to sanctify, to set apart as holy. It's not a word we use very often, but that is what we're supposed to do before we ever into, enter into apologetics. We're supposed to sanctify Christ as Lord. His Lordship is our motivation for doing apologetics. I want to vindicate the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord. I'm not Lord. I didn't come up with Christianity. It's not my it's my worldview, but I didn't invent it. 
Right. Yeah. But, but Jesus is at the heart of it. And I don't want someone to mock my Lord and feel like he can get away with it. Uh, so I want to sanctify Christ Jesus as, as Lord. In terms of the, um, what we're trying to accomplish with apologetics, there's about three things that I've identified we're supposed to accomplish. The first one is to defend the absolute truth of the Christian message. Dan, I know this is something that, that you believe as well. Mm-hmm. We're not into defending bare theism right. or some sort of, some yeah. sort of Unitarian uh, hybrid between all the supposedly monotheistic faiths. We're defending the absolute truth of the Christian message. That's all I'm interested in. Right. We're, Amen. we're supposed to defend our hope, Peter mm-hmm. says. Well, what is our hope? Colossians 1.27 says that Christ in us is the hope of glory. Christ is in us by his Holy Spirit, and Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to us at Pentecost after he had risen from the dead. You don't get that hope without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and along with that comes the whole biblical worldview, because that's at the heart of it. So we want to vindicate the absolute truth of the Christian message. Second thing is we want to shut mouths. Mm. Sometimes people cringe a little bit when you say that, but we're not doing this in a spiteful way, in a vindictive way, but we're shutting mouths because people will come at us with all kinds of accusations mm-hmm. and slander and insults. And they've been doing this to Christians for 2,000 years. They called the first Christians, Dan, you probably know this, but what they, what they called the original Christians, they called us cannibals. Yeah. Yeah, because yep. we were eating flesh and drinking blood. They called mm-hmm. us cannibals. Well, we weren't, of course, really eating flesh and drinking blood. We were taking the Lord's Supper, but they didn't know that. They heard something through the grapevine. They called us cannibals. They also called us incestuous. Mm-hmm. And the reason why they called us incestuous is because Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss. That's just a greeting. But then what do we call each other as Christians? We call each other brother and sister. So you've got brothers and sisters kissing each other in that church over there. <laughs> they must be incestuous. Uh, well, no, of course, that's not what's going on. And apologetics would would clear that up. What do they call us today? You know, they call us uh, racist. Uh, they call us mm-hmm. bigoted. They call us um, all kinds of different phobes. You know, they, they'll call us any number of things. We're not those things. Uh, we We are Christians. And so what apologetics does is it shuts mouths. And when mouths are shut, ears can be opened to hear the gospel. And that really takes us to the third goal of apologetics which is to overcome obstacles to faith in Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25 is one of my favorite passages, Dan, and it says that the Lord's servant must not quarrel, but must be gentle to everyone, able to teach and patient, instructing his opponents in the knowledge of the truth. And the reason why, oh, no, no, sorry, instructing his opponents with gentleness, perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading to faith in the knowledge of the truth. I skipped a line there. But the reason why that is so why apologetics is so valuable for evangelism is because if we do it gently, but firmly and confidently, we can clear away those obstacles to faith. And perhaps the Lord will grant that person repentance. And perhaps that person will come to a knowledge of the truth. We don't lead anyone across the line of faith, if you will. We can we right. can walk with them. We can guide them. We cannot make anybody's heart new. We can't take out the heart of stone and get them It can be a flesh. means that God uses to bring someone to the gospel. Yes, absolutely. That yep. is exactly right. So, so that's what we're aiming for with apologetics. Um, so we talked about the motive, the goals. Um, I'm sure you probably want to get into some other things, but I'll, I'll pause there. Sure. No, that I think overall, that's very helpful. Um, one thing that you brought up is kind of the motivations around doing apologetics. I think 
the pride aspect is something that I think for Christians can be a, a stumbling block because especially on social media, we love to go at other people. We love to write our long Facebook posts and, you know, prove the other person wrong and have all my points night, uh, nicely tight together and consistent. Um, and then sometimes you have to wonder, am I really doing this for the right reasons? Am I really trying to defend the faith here or am I just trying to prove the other person wrong? So I think that point you brought up is helpful because it's always good to check ourselves, I think, to see are we actually doing this for the right reasons or am I doing this just to have a big head and sound smart? A hundred percent. I agree with you. Absolutely. Yep. All right. So kind of diving a little bit more into starting to hit the apologetic methodology. So when we look at other religions, especially, uh, you know, you're coming at this from a presuppositionalist perspective and I come as well um, from a presuppositionalist perspective. When we're looking at other religions, there seems to be a common theme surrounding some of the, the worldview, if you will, uh, of those common pagan religions. So what are some of the fundamental differences when we're engaging maybe like with the Muslim or mm. with the Buddhist or whatever, or an atheist, whatever the case might be, what are some commonalities there that we can immediately shut down when we're uh, interacting with them? Yeah, this is where apologetics gets tricky, but it doesn't have to get tricky. There are thousands of religions in the world. I forget the, the exact number. It's something, it's, it's like 3,900 different discrete religious groups out there. Mm. And so apologetics can get very tricky because you're fielding objections from all of these different groups. And I, quite frankly, I'm not an expert on the Baha'i religion. I know a little mm -hmm. bit about it. I don't know all that much about Sikhism. I've talked with a Sikh. I could hardly understand what he was talking about. He has a, this whole mythology. So I am not an expert in every world religion, and I'd be willing to bet that your listener or your viewer is not as well. Mm -hmm. And so this is where apologetics can get very tricky. And, you know, if we're handling atheists, okay, yeah, there's a lot of, there's been a lot of atheist activity over the last 20, 25 years. Maybe I can deal with that. Muslims, maybe, you know, there's a lot of websites I can go to for that. Mm -hmm. What about some of these more obscure religions? How do I handle objections from them? Well, this is where it doesn't have to be that tricky. What we need to do is rather than try to become an expert in every single religion, we need to understand a few basic facts. First things first is that everybody has a worldview. Mm -hmm. Your worldview, that's your perspective on all of human experience, on the world, on God. It's the complete set of answers that you have, whether you know them, that you hold these or not, to all the world's big questions. Mm -hmm. And so I typically talk about, in my book, I talk about seven big worldview questions. But your world, your worldview encompasses, it's, it's how you view the world. It's like the pair of lenses that you're wearing. Now, different worldviews are more accurate or less accurate to reality, but everybody has a worldview. Yep. Nobody is worldview free. To the extent that a person's worldview is more true, the answers that that worldview is going to provide to the life's big questions, those answers are going to be more true. So you can look at somebody like, you know, maybe you're on your, uh, on social media, you read something from Elon Musk and you go, yeah, that's, that sounds right. You no, know, that sounds really good. But then you read something else from Elon Musk and you go, no, oh, no, no, that's <laughs> not, that's not accurate. Same thing with Jordan Peterson, Joe Rogan, any of these, these guys you might listen to, you go, well, they get some things right, but other things. So maybe Joe Rogan gets more things right than Joe Biden, mm -hmm. but, uh, but, but he's still operating out of a different worldview. And to the extent that he has a non-Christian worldview, to the extent that anyone has a non-Christian worldview, 
they will have a fatal flaw. Every religion other than biblical Christianity has a fatal flaw. The reason for that, I'm not totally sure why the reason for that is. I have some theories. So on the one hand, I think that I feel like it's a personal blessing from the Lord that that is true. As a Christian apologist, I feel like it's God making my life a little easier. <laughs> like God has made sure that every non-Christian system, worldview, religion, philosophy has a fatal flaw. I'll tell you about what that fatal flaw, what, how to identify that in just a second. But um, the second reason though, is that there's only one tr- true and correct view of the world and that's God's view of the world. Mm-hmm. So to the extent that anyone denies any aspect of what God says, there's going to be a hiccup in that worldview. There's going to be something that doesn't line up. And every single worldview has one of those fatal flaws. I call it a fatal flaw because it undercuts the entire worldview. If you take the worldview as a whole, think of a worldview as a plate glass window. If you take a hammer and whack one one point of that plate glass window at any point, doesn't matter where, the whole thing is shattered. Mm-hmm. You might not realize it at first, but eventually the cracks are going to spread its way out and that plate glass is ruined. You couldn't sell somebody a cracked plate glass window. You couldn't do it because it's worthless. Mm-hmm. And worldviews work the same way. Every non-Christian worldview has a fatal flaw. And the reason why it has a fatal flaw is because its presuppositions don't line up with its conclusions. Mm-hmm. What do these words mean? Presuppositions are the assumptions that we bring to the table. Um, a couple different meanings for presuppositions are out there. but Essentially, I'm talking about those assumptions that we never really question, that we all take for granted, mm-hmm. that we don't really realize. The people around us tend to share our presuppositions, um, at, at least in terms of people who practice our similar religion or people who live in our own home, maybe not in our neighborhood, but the people we interact with in much of life tend to share much of our presuppositions. Mm-hmm. Um, but for every non-Christian worldview, the basic assumptions underlying that non-Christian worldview, those presuppositions, at some point they don't line up with their conclusions. Mm-hmm. Very basic example of this, if we're talking about atheism, you'll often hear atheists accuse the God of the Bible of being immoral. Well, atheism, depending on what kind of atheism it is, let's say it's like physicalism, which believes that there's nothing except for what is physically here, phys- right. physical matter. Materialism. Know, yeah. Materialism, correct. Yep. Um, well, laws of morality are by definition immaterial. We could go into all their other attributes, but right there, if I'm a materialist, I don't get moral absolutes because moral absolutes are immaterial reality. Mm-hmm. They're not made out of matter. And there's, like I said, there's other attributes we could look at, but right there, I've already identified a fatal flaw. So every single worldview other than biblical Christianity has one of these fatal flaws. Um, I spoke with some Jehovah's Witnesses who God sent to my door a couple of weeks ago. And picked the wrong door, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> well, or the right door, depending on how you, yeah. uh, how you look at it. One of them was actually very receptive to what we were talking about. But um, Jehovah's Witness will try to disprove Christianity using the Bible. That's a fatal flaw because the Bible teaches biblical Christianity. Mm-hmm. It doesn't teach Jehovah's Witness theology. And so um, I'm not saying that it's therefore easy to disprove Jehovah's Witness theology, especially if they've been very well trained and and you haven't. Um, But that is a fatal flaw in Jehovah's Witness theology. So so what we do then, and and very briefly, without getting into a whole 
discourse on the method, unless if you want me to ask me to, but um, the, what we do to uncover the fatal flaw is we perform what's called a reductio ad absurdum. Mm. We reduce the non-Christian position to absurdity. And I like to break that down. There's three steps to the reductio, the reductio ad absurdum. First thing, clarify what your opponent actually means. Only way to do that is by asking questions. Mm-hmm. Scripture says in Proverbs, it says, he who answers without listening, that is his folly and his shame. Mm. You don't want to be foolish and shameful. So ask a lot of questions. Questions like, what do you mean by that? How'd you come to believe that? What are the implications of this? Um, can you give me an example? If that weren't true, would you be, <laughs> this is what I like to ask. So if that weren't true, would you repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ right now? You know, oftentimes they just ignore the question because you know, there's something else going on. But what we're trying to do is we're trying to clarify so that I don't try to refute a point that they don't even believe. So mm-hmm. we clarify. The next thing we do is we find the inconsistency. And this, this isn't always easy, but the more you do it, the easier it does get. Oh, you're, you're making a moral argument. You're making an argument about science. You're making an argument about logic. You're making an argument about the Bible. You're making an argument about uh, politics what have you. You're finding the inconsistency between what they claim to believe and what they're trying to use to attack Christianity. Mm-hmm. And you're asking yourself, what is, for their objection to be, to have teeth, for it to hurt, what has to be true? What conditions does their worldview have to meet? And their mm-hmm. worldview can't meet those conditions. So we find, we're finding the inconsistency, and then we're going to push the unbeliever towards the uncertainty. We're going to push them further. And I got this from Francis Schaeffer, I think one of the greatest thinkers mm. of, the, of the 20th century. Not a Baptist, but you know we'll, we won't hold that against him, right? <laughs> um, but he, he talks about how you, you push them further towards the conclusion that they don't realize they need to come to. Okay, so, so there is no objective standard of morality. Is that what you're saying? So we really can't believe that Stalin was immoral. Or you know what I like? You know what mm-hmm. I like to do, Dan? This is a total side note, okay? But what I will often like to do is I'll say, well, if there's no objective morality, then we can't even say that abortion is wrong. And I like right. to do that just, I yeah. like to do it because my guess is they're probably pro-abortion. But I like to throw that out there just because um, abortion is the most obviously heinous immora- immorality that there is. And I like to just, what I like to do is I like to get them to say, oh, I'm actually pro-abortion. And I'll go, well, there you go. You see what I'm saying? without abortion, this is where it takes you. And then I'm kind of appealing to the audience. Like, you guys, do you see where subjective morality gets you? This guy believes that abortion is fine. And so um, that's just a little little something I like to do. Um, and they can't even say that abortion is right without any kind of abstainer morality. So they're stuck in either side. Correct. Yep. I'm trying to think if I've ever successfully pulled that off. But I want to. So. <laughs> but um, but so, so you clarify the position. You uh, you find the inconsistency. You push the unbeliever towards the uncertainty, uh, and, and towards the contradiction. And in doing so, what you're doing is you're you're showing them that their house has no foundation. It's mm. a foundation of sand, according to Jesus, because it's not built on the teachings of Jesus Christ. So, uh, you can do this with any religion if you're willing, with any philosophy if you're willing to take the time and ask the questions. I'm not saying it's easy, but it doesn't have to be overly complicated. Yeah. And to add to that, it's also, like you said, it, it really is a foundation of sin. Like Romans one says that man knows that God exists. God has revealed him in 
himself in creation through the things that have been made. His natural law is clearly visible. Yet people suppress it. They don't want anything to do with what they know. Um, and so they will use all these different kinds of arguments to try and as a mode of suppressing the truth that they know that God exists, yet they refuse it. You know, I, I like to think of, you know, those above ground swimming pools yeah. from when you're a kid. Yeah. I like to imagine that filled with ping pong balls and the ping mm. pong balls are facts about God that are undeniable. His eternal power, his divine nature, which has been clearly seen since the creation of the world, mm. having been revealed in the things that are made. And the, the skeptic is gathering these ping pong balls together and trying to hold them under the water. The water signifies like the level of our awareness. Yeah. And he's pushing them down under the water, which is a full-time job because that is not easy. You could maybe hold three, four, five, six under the water, but you start to think about like 100, 200, especially if they are in, you know, if they've, if they've got higher degrees. So let's say they, they've studied science or something like mm -hmm. that. And they've got all this information about God and his world. And they're trying to suppress these facts, holding those ping pong balls under the water. What often happens inevitably is that one or two of those ping pong balls is going to shoot up above the surface. And that will become the hyper-focus for that person. Mm -hmm. They'll become hyper-focused on treating people fairly, but it'll be corrupted into right. some sort of social justice thing. Um, but it'll, it, it'll, or, or the environment or animals treating animals. Well, sometimes people will become obsessed over their, their pets. They'll treat mm -hmm. them like, like children. Mm -hmm. What, what's going on there? It's, it's, they're, ultimately suppressing the truth about God and something else is popping up and becoming a hyper focus. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I'm not, I'm not saying if you love your pets, there's something wrong with you, but right. you know what I'm talking about? I'm talking about people who suppress the truth about God and they turn to anything else in creation, mm -hmm. uh, as a means of their ultimately worship. So if you love your pets, you love your dogs, I'm not throwing shade at you or anybody <laughs> else, you know, that's a good thing. That's a, that's a normal thing, but not when it becomes an idol. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's really what Paul's argument is there is that they're worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator, making images or turning their direction away from God, who they should be worshiping towards the creature. And that really, and I think that leads into our next question here about why we should presuppose God. And I think part of that flows from the fact that man already knows that God exists. There's, there's no need for us to work our way up to God in terms of assuming that the person is coming from a neutral standpoint right they're coming from a morally wicked standpoint already and you know we're really just coming at them on the basis of what they already know but i guess you know leading into that discussion why is that important as we're going you know into an apologetics discussion excellent question there's two ways that we presuppose god as far as i can understand it on the one hand we, we start with God as our foundation for our worldview, for how we interact with the world. Mm -hmm. Let me put that to the side for just a second and talk about the other way that God is presupposed. God is presupposed by the Christian and the non-Christian, but the non-Christian does it without knowing it. So this is like a subconscious, or what we might say is a tacit presupposition. Here's what I mean. The idea of logic, if you believe that logic is important, you, the idea of logic presupposes God, whether we like it or not. Mm -hmm. And here's the thing. If you say that logic is real 
and there are actual laws of logic that govern our thought, that govern truth, that presupposes God. Mm -hmm. If you say that there is no such thing as logic, logic does not obtain. There, there are no rules of logic. They're just a convention. You are also presupposing God. Here's why. Because the very concept of logic at all, the idea that there could be laws governing the world, whether you think that they are or aren't there, that very concept makes no sense without God. Now, mm. that's a whole rabbit trail. And I'm not going to say I have a firm enough grasp on it. I couldn't teach a class on why that's true. But um, the, these, these concepts that we rely on to make sense of the world only make sense if God is there. And I could get into why logic presupposes God, but um, the, the, the importance of presupposing God is this. God is inevitable. I guess that's really the point that I'm trying to make. If someone is appealing to morality, if someone is appealing to logic, if someone is appealing to science, those are kind of the big three, mm -hmm. then they, they are tacitly, unintentionally describing the world as if it is exactly the way the Bible says it is, and as if God has created it, and God is behind it, and Jesus Christ is holding it all together. Mm. So why it's important for us to presuppose God is because as Christians, God has structured the world so that it accords with what the Bible teaches. Mm. We don't have to step out of our Christianity, out of our Christian worldview, in order to defend our Christianity. God has really done us a favor here. Christianity is not just a worldview contained in a book that has no bearing on reality. The book, the Bible, as it turns out, describes reality the way it actually is. Mm. So if you want to defend your Christianity, God has put arguments, evidence, anything that you could possibly need. He has given that to you in the world. There is, and it all agrees perfectly with the Bible. Mm -hmm. So there is no reason to try and find neutral ground between you and the unbeliever, uh, neutral, let's say neutral territory, where I won't be a Christian, you won't be an atheist, or you won't be a Muslim. We'll just meet in the middle. There's no reason to do that. As a matter of fact, that would actually be incoherent. So I know I'm getting a little complicated here, but um, it's it's a little bit like, here's how I describe, you mentioned neutrality. Here's how I, I like to think about it. Imagine there's an astronaut who is tired of life on Earth. Mm. And she says, I'm going to go up and I'm going to go to the midpoint between Venus and Earth. And I'm going to evaluate Venus and Earth to decide which one I want to live on. Okay, so, so she starts evaluating, and she goes, well, on Venus, yeah, gravity is lighter. I could probably slam dunk a basketball on Venus. That'd be nice. And then she's like, okay, so, so far Venus is winning because I could slam dunk a basketball. That's really exciting. Second, let's look at the temperature on Venus. Ooh, no, that I'll, I'll be burned alive. What about the atmosphere? No, I can't live there because I can't. If I try to take one breath on this planet of Venus, I will die instantly. My lungs will disintegrate and implode. So I can't, I can't live there. Uh, the, the sun's going to scorch me to death and I can't breathe. Okay. Um, 
is there any other evidence that I could look for to see? Because I really don't like life on Earth. I'm sick of it. All the people there are jerks. But is there anything else, any other evidence I could look at for Venus? Where is the, okay, take a step back. Where is this astronaut as she's making this evaluation? She is in a comfort-controlled spaceship in outer space, which she could not survive in. She couldn't survive in the neutral territory. But she is probably sitting comfortably about 65 to 75 degrees. She's breathing uh, an oxygen and nitrogen mix, similar to our Earth's atmosphere. Um, she is, there's, there's no gravity per se, but if she doesn't get back to gravity soon, her body organs aren't going to work as well uh, unless she gets back to gravity soon. She's brought food with her. She's brought water with her. Is she really neutral between Venus and Earth? Not at all. She's had to import a little pod filled with Earth-like conditions with her to even make the evaluation. Which planet should I live in? Worldviews are exactly the same. If you're evaluating Christianity and any other religion, to even make sense of the conversation, to even make sense of the question, should I become a Muslim? Should I become a Christian? Should I become a Jehovah's Witness? Should I stay a Christian? You have to think in categories that the Bible describes. You have to presuppose logic, morality, the preconditions of science, intelligibility of, of uh, the world, and uniformity in nature. These are things that the Bible, the biblical worldview, supports and supports you with that if you were to abandon Christianity, you would lose all those things. You'd burn up, so to speak. So this is why we say you presuppose God because neutrality is untenable. It's unsurvivable. And the other worldview is unsurvivable. And the only reason they can survive over there is because they've snuck over to Christianity and taken things from Christianity, like logic, like morality, only then to deny that they got them from Christianity or from, from the biblical worldview, I should say, and, um, and only to deny the God that actually keeps those things humming, keeps them, uh, keeps them going. So neutrality is a myth, truly. I, I mean a myth in the, mm -hmm. the false sense. Um, there is no true neutrality, and the idea that we can be neutral and merely argue from the evidence in a neutral standpoint, uh, it, it doesn't work. I'm happy to talk more about that if you'd like, or, or whatever you want to talk about. Sure, sure. Um, no, I think that's helpful because I, I think in this, I think kind of ties into the next question about arguing from evidence. I think when you have, you know, people coming at from coming at apologetics from an evidential perspective, the Bible is treated as if it doesn't matter in the conversation at all. And that the tools, like you said, the tools that God provides us aren't really helpful to the conversation. We assume neutrality. We're assuming that, hey, we can get to God if we just have enough scientific evidence or if you have the highest probability that Jesus rose from the dead or something like that. We can get to that point and then we'll talk about the Bible. Right. When that, I mean, that's, that's not the model that God has given us. If we believe that the scriptures are indeed the final authority for faith and practice and provide us kind of those, you know, we have natural revelation, special revelation that come together to give us that full picture. If we have the scriptures that brings us that full picture together, then we're giving the unbeliever what reality truly is. You know, what else do we really need? Those other things can be helpful, but they're all flowing from the understanding that this reality is already established and we're not starting from some sort of neutrality. I get frustrated with evidential apologetics because it 
it undermines that entire foundation and it pretends that you know we're, we as christians aren't even christians mm. in order to get to become a christian it, it doesn't make any sense <laughs> right but yeah i i have friends that are evidentialists uh i've had jay warner wallace on my show a couple of times he's an evidentialist i love jay warner wallace uh, he's fantastic and his book especially his new book person of interest is phenomenal i absolutely love it and i recommend it for every christian to read but like you uh i would i look at his approach and i say yeah that's all well and good if you're already a christian right (laughs) because we believe in evidence now god can god can do this god can win a person god can do whatever he wants but god can win a person over let's say using a hardcore evidentialist approach like a case for christ lee strobel something like that lee strobel wrote a book called the case for christ where yep. he evidentially goes through and yeah. and um he was a proves... lawyer i think or something like that well, i'm sorry i think he was a lawyer and he was like looking at different evidences and came to that conclusion yeah he was a, a journalist at the chicago tribune actually okay yes okay. um but but very similar you know weighing the evidence and so God can save somebody like that. What you find, though, is that after you become a Christian, you look back and you go, oh, I had no business believing the evidence was a meaningful thing anyway. Like, yeah. As a non-Christian, that wasn't even part of my worldview. I didn't know that at the time, you know. But uh, but God can be gracious and, and win someone using evidence. Uh, but as Christians, you know, we we don't want to grant the non-Christian worldview anything that it's not entitled to. So this is why I talk about, when I talk about apologetics, I talk about two different two different broad streams of apologetics or two different types of apologetics, skeptic first and scripture first. Skeptic first starts with the claims of the skeptic, the non-Christian, mm-hmm. and takes those claims at face value. Mm. And what happens with skeptic first apologetics, Dan, is that you get stuck in the skeptical cycle of doom. That's what I call it. Mm. The, the skeptical cycle of doom goes like this. Step one, the unbeliever says, I need more evidence if I'm going to believe in God. You take that claim at face value, you say, all right. So you go, step two, you believe him. Step three, you go and research the evidence. And here's the amazing thing. You read your evidential apologists, you read your young earth creationists, and you go, man, this is amazing. Look at all this evidence. So you go back. And step four, you present the evidence to your skeptical friend. He looks at the evidence and he goes, ha, you call this evidence? I don't accept any of this. This this talks about supernatural stuff. Supernaturalism is yep. ruled out from the very beginning. I don't accept this. Try again. Give me some more evidence. And you go, oh, no, this is harder than I thought. You believe him and you go right back to step one, step two, and you repeat the process. And you end up banging your head against the wall and the person doesn't get any closer to belief and you don't get any closer to vindicating your beliefs because you haven't even established that God is real let alone right. that Jesus rose from the dead, let alone that Jesus is the only way to salvation. Contrast that with scripture-first apologetics. In scripture-first apologetics, you don't start with the claims of the skeptic. You start with the claims of the Bible because you're a Christian. And you say, what does the Bible say about the world, about what can be known about God, about what everyone knows about God, about what even my non-Christian friend or opponent believes about God? Well, according to Romans 1, as you already mentioned, Dan, God's wrath is revealed from heaven against men who don't have enough evidence. No. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. 
Although they knew God, they did not acknowledge him as God or give him thanks. They did not glorify him as God or give him thanks. So their problem, according to the Bible, is not an evidence problem. It's a worship problem. And it's the exact same problem that I still have the residue of in my own heart. It's mm-hmm. the same problem that I had before I became a Christian. So yeah. I don't look down on these people as they're, they're some kind of dummies who just can't understand evidence. They're not dummies. They're probably smarter than I am. But thankfully, evangelism and apologetics is not about how smart you are. Yeah. Remember, it's not about being a professional or a pastor or a PhD or a philosopher. It's about trusting and, and standing on God's words. So what we do in Scripture First Apologetics, we start with the claims of Scripture, and then we go right for the, right for the presuppositions. We go right for the foundation of the house. And we say, well, Jesus said that a life built on faulty teachings is like a house built on a foundation of sand. So what's, what's at this foundation? Let me, let me go down to the basement here and look for all the cracks. Mm-hmm. And we say, oh, yeah, there's all kinds of inconsistencies here. This guy wants me to give him evidence. He can't even support the idea of evidence as a meaningful concept. Mm-hmm. Very briefly, evidence requires rational inference. Rational inference is where you take premise one, premise two, premise three, and you go, therefore, conclusion. Therefore, the conclusion must follow from the premises. The premises are true. That's how evidence works. You can't get there from a foundation that says God is not real. Mm. You don't get evidence. Logical inference, well, what the heck is that? That's a rule that governs the world. And who made this rule? And why should I believe in this rule? You know, I had this, this fun conversation with a non-Christian several years ago. He's an atheist, self-proclaimed atheist. And he tells me, he goes, you know, you Christians are always, you Christians are irrational. That's your problem. You're irrational. And we started talking and we started talking about evidence. And I, I kind of went through sort of a presuppositional uh, approach with him. And at the end I go, uh, my friend, I won't tell you his name, but I said, my friend, uh, you, you, you're presupposing all these things, but you don't have a foundation to to presuppose any of these things. Mm -hmm. You are being, you've got a contradiction. You're being irrational. And he looks me square, square in the eye and he goes, well, I'm okay being irrational. <laughs> and I stopped, I just stopped and I started to smile and I go, did you hear what you just said? What are we talking about again? What did you say to me at the beginning of this conversation? And it was just this perfect moment where he laughed and I laughed and we both realized like, come on, man, like, right. you're going to have, you know, so, so that argument at least was put to bed. Um, but, uh, you know, we want to, we want to stick with scripture. We want to stick with what scripture says. We don't want to get caught in the skeptical cycle of doom. Um, there's no perfect apologist, but God's word is true. And if you stick with what it says, you really can't go wrong. Yep. Amen. And and it kind of goes back to what you said earlier about a bare theism. Evidentialism, divorced from any kind of biblical foundation, is going to end up with just a bare theism. It's just going to be a nameless, faceless God. And that doesn't mean that you can't understand you know, understand God from creation as we just saw in Romans one. And even there are pagan philosophers that saw elements of, of God's essence through what was made with, you know, absent the scriptures, but yeah, we can't bring them to a true knowledge of, of God, especially a saving knowledge. Cause that's the ultimate goal here without that special revelation. They have to have a gospel. They have to know the God that is revealed in scripture, mm. which is the God of nature, but that's only part of the story. There's, yeah. it doesn't bring everything home that needs to be there. Yeah. Well, and bare theism is incoherent anyway, because this is something that I've been focusing my work on over the last couple of years. 
Bare theism does not even account for the simplest things, the most fundamental things that we need. If you want morality of any kind, of objective, absolute morality, you don't get that from some kind of a bare theism. Like you wouldn't get that from a Unitarian God. Why not? Because the foundation of morality is love. Love one another, love the Lord your God. Well, if morality is not going to be arbitrary, then it has to be part of God's nature. There's, there's an old philosophical dilemma called the Euthyphro dilemma. I won't explain it all right now, but essentially the question is, is morality above God or is it below God? If it's above God, then it's a higher standard than God, and he's not God. If it's below God, then it's just arbitrary. Yeah. Well, but for morality to be real, it has to be rooted in God's nature, who God is. But here's the thing. A monad uh, and a Unitarian God, that God doesn't love anyone or anything other than itself, which that's not the kind of love we're talking about. Scripture says, love your neighbor as you love yourself, meaning you, we know you love yourself. That's the baseline. Now love that other person. That's morality. Well, if that is not going to be arbitrary, and if it's not going to be higher than God, it has to be rooted in God's nature. But how in the world could a monad or a Unitarian God love its neighbor? But without creation, there is no neighbor. So a God like that would have to create someone in order to love that person. Well, that means that that God is dependent, and that God's morality is actually dependent on creation. Mm. And 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 real morality, God's morality, is not dependent on anyone other than himself. Amen. God, God is self-sufficient in and of himself. He does not Amen. require us. He doesn't yep. need us to be God, and to be moral, or to be good. In fact, yep. Jesus says no one is good except for God alone. So God is perfectly good. God does not need us. But, but now here's the thing. Now, you ha- now you're talking. You're not just talking about bare theism. You're talking about triune, Trinitarian theism. Because mm-hmm. in Trinitarian theism, you've got, uh, think about the relationships you've got. You've got I and you, you've got I and you, you guys, in Chicago, we'd say yous, I and yous, the plural you. We've got, we've got, um, we and you singular. We've got, we've got, uh, um, well, think about it. You've got first, second, and third person singular, and you've got first, second, and third person plural. And that's all you need. That's every kind of relationship that you need for a full orbed love. That's a family, if you will. That's mom, dad, and child. There's all the different kinds of relationships you can possibly have. First person, second person, and third person, singular and plural. Well, the only God that can account for that kind of love is the triune God of Scripture, that is Yahweh, the triune God. So this idea of bare theism, well, we just need to get to bare theism, you know, just prove that a God exists. Well, which God, what God are we talking about? Is, is, it, is he three in one? Because if not, he can't even ground morality anyway. And if he's three in one, then we're just talking about Christianity, right? Like that's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Unless you know of a different triune God, like you want to try to defend some other triune God? Why? Why not just open up your Bible and read what it says? So I'm going on a rant here, but this idea of bare theism, it sticks in my craw because man, God's given you everything you need. Just just use the Bible. It's incredibly frustrating. And and I think you bring out a good point that if, God, if morality, because I've heard that question posed that is morality, you know, is God his own morality or is morality something outside of God that he's just pulling from and making laws on? Right. Um, I mean, that if we say things like that, now God is dependent upon that morality to be who he is. And right. 
God is simple, no parts in God. God is love. God is goodness itself. And the ultimate glory is for himself, um, as we see in Romans eleven thirty six. So to have a, a worldview like that uh, is incoherent just from an evidentialist perspective. And we have to go back to the, the God of Scripture. Yep. Well, Joel, I think that's all we have for today. I really appreciate the discussion. I, I think there's a lot of good points here, and hopefully this is helpful. Um, I think in my audience, there's kind of a, a mixture of, of different views. You're going to have probably the, the presuppositionalist and kind of the classical apologetics mm -hmm. approach, like an R.C. Sproul kind of approach. Um, so you're going to have different, uh, you know, different views, even in my audience, I think. So I think this is helpful for people. I hope it will be helpful for people in your audience and mine as, you know, we're kind of working through these issues and continue the conversation. But I thank you for joining me today. And um, yeah, it was my pleasure. Could I, could I make a quick plug for my book? Absolutely. Go right ahead. So my book is called The Bible-Based Worldview and uh, just came out a couple of months ago in October. And um, it was, I was happy to see it was, it was on some of these charts on Amazon for a while. But uh, it's what it does is it lays out the seven big worldview questions and mm. explains how Christianity answers those questions. So this is sort of like a pre-apologetics book. Mm -hmm. We do get into some apologetics where we'll talk about, hey, here's how Islam answers this question of who is Jesus, or mm. here's how materialism answers this question of what is ultimately real. But, but it's not primarily a how to defend your faith book. It's more like, what is the faith that we're defending? Right. And so it goes, it goes over the seven worldview questions. It's called the Bible-based worldview. It's available on Amazon. Um, and uh, a lot of the stuff that we talked about today is very much in line with what's in that book. So if anybody wants to go check that out, they can go to Amazon. Um, and uh, I, you know, at the end of the day, I, I hope that it's helpful. My goal was to equip regular believers to be able to articulate and defend their faith. And so uh, hopefully we've accomplished that with this book. Great. Yeah, go and check that out on Amazon. I actually bought it and I read some of it as as a preparation uh, for this. So there were some helpful things in there that helped drive the conversation today. So go and check that out on Amazon. Now, I mentioned the Hammer and Anvil Society earlier. And again, if family discipleship, family leadership is something that you want to explore and you want to do it in a community of brothers who are holding each other accountable, who are seeking to walk the journey and fulfill the ministry that the Lord has given us as Christian men, the Hammer and Anvil Society is for you. You can learn more about it and how much it costs, what the perks are, what the benefits are by going to thethink.institute slash society. Hope to see you there. If you have any questions, please let me know at thethink.institute slash contact. Thank you for listening to Worldview Legacy. This episode was produced by yours truly, Joel Sedeckes, and is a production of the Think Institute. We are a Christian teaching and outreach nonprofit organization that seeks to help regular believers to become worldview leaders. And if you appreciate this work, would you please consider prayerfully and financially supporting this ministry? You can learn more about how to do that by going to thethink.institute slash partner. Until next time, Stay based by God's grace.